0: The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums Podcast, presented by Phil Hinton.
1: And welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for August 2011. Coming up, we look at some of the products we have reviewed in the last month and we also preview the new Panasonic PT85000 3D LCD projector. So joining me for the podcast this month, we've got a full house, uh, Mark, Steve and Russell. Good evening, guys. Good evening, So so we're going to kick off with uh, some reviews on the Home Cinema Podcast this month, and uh, we have had uh, quite a few reviews up in in July there. Um, I think it was a record month for us in terms of review content, so we've got lots to talk about. Uh, But I think... Uh, let's start off with the most technical of those uh, products that we reviewed, and that means going over to Steve to talk about the Lumagen Now, uh, Steve, maybe you should start out by explaining what the Lumagen actually is.
2: Well, basically, Phil, the Lumogen is a video processor, so um, it combines elements of um, a switching HDMI switching, or well, in fact, all video uh, input switching. Uh, and audio switching as well, so you you, you can basically treat it as a, as a as a as a hub effectively for all of your sources to go into, uh, and then from there obviously to the uh, the, the display unit itself and even uh, um, onto possibly the amp as well, because it actually has uh, six HDMI inputs and two HDMI outputs, as well as inputs for um, S video, composite, component. Um, and also uh, coaxial audio in and out as well so you know it really is quite quite well well equipped in terms of uh, interconnectivity which i think is a, a good thing i mean these days people have got multiple sources um four to six uh, um eight, hdmi sources is not you know, unusual so i think from that perspective alone is interesting because it clearly you know most tvs um and projector well, projector may have two inputs tv might have four um, you know, uh, this has got six plus two outputs. So that's a good start. You've got, you've, got, you've got all your sources connected to one device and then it's also a video processor. So you've got um, uh, de-interlacing and, and scaling uh, and also some quite other interesting little features in there too. Um, primarily, the, the, the key feature of this, aside from just deinterlacing and scaling, it, is that uh, it can actually do calibration as well. So you can calibrate uh, grayscale and, um, uh, and the color gamut. Uh, you can do that for 2D, and you can do it for 3D. In terms of its capability, it's probably the single most flexible device I think I've ever ever tested. Uh, it really is capable of doing just about everything you could throw at it. Like Obviously, we did our lo- usual video processing tests in terms of de-interlacing, cadence detection, and scaling, uh, and there it aced, the, aced, aced all the tests, uh, even the really obscure uh, cadences that, that, that are on there for sort of anime and things like that. Yeah, it, it, it aced all the tests there, so very impressive in terms of that. Uh, in terms of the calibration controls, uh, I used it with a, an X3 um, and, and it's capable of taking the X3, which actually does have uh, a very good grayscale, but doesn't have any CMS built into it. It, it took the uh, X3 to a reference point in terms of both grayscale and, uh, and, color, gam- and color gamut. Um, and uh, obviously, it's got some interesting little, little extra features in there that perhaps you wouldn't have thought of. Um, one of the really interesting ones is called uh, reinterlacing. So basically, if you're feeding it uh, an already deinterlaced signal from a source, perhaps isn't particularly good at deinterlacing, it can reinterlace the signal and then deinterlace it again itself. And that can be quite useful. I believe certain things like some sky sources can be already deinterlaced and that can be useful for that. Uh, So that's an interesting little feature it's got in there. Also, it has multiple aspect ratio control, which basically means that uh, obviously you have the usual aspect ratios like 1.85 to 1, 2.35 to 1, but uh, you can also do custom ratios too. So you can uh, stretch this, the image vertically and horizontally, uh, which means that you can uh, use it in conjunction with an anamorphic lens, for example. Or, in fact, um, what I've done with it is for a 2.35 to 1 screen, you can actually use the uh, Lumigen to resize. Um, the image for 1.85 to 1 movies without actually having to do any zoom on shift. Obviously, by doing that, that you might introduce some scanning artifacts, but they certainly aren't visible at all. Uh, um, And it means that I can just by pressing a button go from 2.35 to 1 to 1.85 to 1 without actually even using an anamorphic lens. And I think that's that's quite a useful feature. So, I mean, it it does an awful lot of stuff. Uh, And and in fact, in the review, uh, I mean, I tried to cover as much as I possibly could, but I think I was just scratching the surface in terms of what it's capable of. It really is an incredibly flexible piece of equipment. Um, and if you think about it in terms of, you know, okay, it's about £3,000. But if you think about it in terms of adding it with a projector, thats say a very good projector, but doesn't have a CMS like the X3, for example, um, you can have a particularly, you know, a really good uh, package there. For about the price, same price as an X7, so uh, it, it does offer uh, you know flexibility and opportunities in, in ways perhaps you might not have thought of. It's not just a, a you know a and scaler; it is a full CMS as well and grayscale, um, as well as having multiple um, uh, connections for, for sources uh, and displays. So uh, yeah, overall, Phil, I was massively impressed with it. I mean, it got a reference score. Um, and I think it thoroughly deserved it. It really is a, a quite remarkable piece of equipment, and, and for my money, at least, the the best uh, processor that I, I I've seen in in a long time.
1: No, there's a few models out there under the Luminar banner. Um, what are the differences between yeah. the different models?
2: Yes, Phil. There's there's the XE three D, which is the top of the line model, which is what you could buy new now. Originally, it was called the XD. Uh, the XD was identical to the XE except the XD had uh, HDMI version 1.2 inputs. Uh, there's also then the XE, which had one point, version 1.3 inputs, and now the XE 3D, which has version 1.4 inputs. However, with a uh, most recent software upgrade, the XD, XE and XE 3D all have identical uh, capabilities in terms of processing. They can all handle 2D and 3D. They're absolutely identical. The only difference between those three models is the uh hdmi inputs but they are all capable of handling 3d um and they can all have, have exactly the same processing inside them uh, and exactly the same software um and all the other connections are identical as well so it's just the hdmi um sockets themselves which are slightly different but um on top of that there's also the xs which is very similar to the XE except it uh I think it has uh, two less inputs. I think it's four inputs four HDMI in and two HDMI out. And then there's also the X, uh, I think it's the Lumagen Radiance Mini. And the Mini, uh, once again, has exactly the same processing as um, the XD, the XE, and the XS, uh, but it only has two HDMI inputs and one HDMI output. It also doesn't have picture in picture or picture out of picture. So, um, so those are the kind of options you have. And obviously the, the, the prices are adjusted accordingly. But, but um, in terms of actual processing capability, all of those models have exactly the same software inside them. It's just usually, mostly it's just the differences in connectivity um, that, that, that's different between the different models.
1: Okay, well, thanks very much for that. And if uh, our listeners want more information on the Lubogen and you want to read the review, then it is up there at avforums.com forward slash reviews. And uh, it's a reference level product there steve
2: absolutely phil definitely a very definition of reference uh, um, quite superb in terms of its performance and capabilities
1: and uh, i would hope so as well at the price okay so okay. moving on uh, mark you've been looking at the latest cinema 3d tv from lg so uh, give us your thoughts
3: Yes, Phil, that's right. Uh, and much like Steve, I was pretty much bowled away by the uh, passive Cinema 3D experience from LG. That was probably the star of the show for me. It, it was a, a solid panel, um, decent contrast, decent black levels, nothing amazing, but it's, uh, it's an IPS panel, so we wouldn't expect that. Um, viewing angles were great, of course. Um, out of the box, the grayscale was, well, I didn't really need to calibrate it, to be fair. It was it was Delta I was under 3 all the way. Um, I did have a little tinker with it just because they're, they're good enough to provide the 10-point um, controls. Um, CMS to, uh, didn't need much tweaking either really, to be fair, so it was an excellent, well, was quite stunning out-of-the-box performance really for a, a TV of this price. Um, as I say, it was the 3D that really that really won it over for me, uh, as someone that sort of struggles to watch the active shutter system for too long without feeling a little bit headachy and being aware of the uh, the shuttering of the glasses. Uh, yeah, the real revelation for me, as I said, was uh, was wearing the non-shuttering glasses, and it was just made it a far more comfortable experience, as well as uh, not much danger of crosstalk being induced by the display. Um, unfortunately, there was still the issue of lag, even though we'd fed back to LG and they'd have, with uh, Steve's 550 review, and they'd had it spash at fixing it with a with a firmware a software update rather, um, but still still lagging quite highly, and that, that was the same for audio as well. There was a there was a definite delay with external sources that needed sorting out but luckily in the sound menus there is the facility to, to sort that out reasonably well uh, overall really really liked it um, the only stop thing that stopped it getting the highly recommended award was Steve's review of the 550 with it being a, a basically the same set for less money it uh, it represents better value I think uh, unless you're a big fan of uh, motion interpolation which I'm not
1: uh, so marky you mentioned the uh, the passive 3D. You also had LG's uh, PZ950 plasma uh, in for review at the same time, which was uh, active. So, did you did you look at them both at the same time with the uh, with the glasses, etc.? Did you have a bit of an experimentation with
3: it? Yeah, I did have a chance for a side by side with the 950 uh, and the 650, and uh, to me, I much preferred the the passive uh led lcd approach for uh, certainly for lg anyhow zero crosstalk um far more comfortable to to view no headaches for me uh, felt fine the next day i think i had one of my 3d headaches and uh, yeah that's a hands down winner
1: and uh you didn't mind the the lack of resolution
3: no it didn't didn't seem to affect I me mean, i was sitting at six foot on a 42 inch does it really matter the added depth the added depth that's there from the 3D kind of fools the eye into thinking there's more resolution there in the first place. So it no, never saw it as an issue, to be quite honest.
1: Okay, so that's the LG uh, 42LW650T. Uh, if you want to read the review, it is up there, abforums.com forward slash reviews. Let's move sure. to some audio stuff. So Russell was uh, sunning himself in Turkey uh, last time we recorded, lucky chap. So, uh, Back to audio, Valodyne, digital drive, 15-incher, and it's a Plus version. So maybe you can start with telling us what the difference is between the, the Plus and uh, the model it replaces.
0: Well, basically, it's it's a bit more of the same formula. Um, it still relies on Valodyne's core technology of servo-sensing uh, the cone movement and then correcting uh, the cone movement to take distortion out of the equation. Um but basically they've just had a, a wee look at it after eight years, engineered in a few more features and, and frankly put a lot more I was gonna say a lot more power. There is no more power. They put a much bigger driver uh in the box as well. Um it's you know, it looked pretty familiar to anybody who has the previous model, um, but it's um it's quite something else in use the velodyne digital drive system is basically uh, it's the dsp the digital signal processing core of the subwoofer everything that comes into it is converted into a digital signal so then it can then apply far more complex processing um to that signal as it passes its way through now the last system was already probably one of the most flexible um, but if there's one thing it didn't do very well was basically the auto setup, the idea where you can plug a microphone in the front, press go, sit down quietly, let it run through some test zones, and end up with a, with a, with a be- better in room response. In actual fact, the old one could quite frankly end up with a worse one. It really wasn't worth a pig and a poke. With the new one, it rather than just, it has eight bands of frequencies, it can slide up and down, but it can also now, unlike the old system, slide them side to side to actually match the modes of the room. More precisely, and, and and tune them out far more effectively. So it's actually that feature is actually worth it now. Albeit, they do seem to have slightly confused it by having two auto setups on it, one which includes the speakers and one which doesn't. But you know, can't have too much of a good thing, I suppose. Um, but the key thing about the subwoofer is it still has the um, the servo um, technology. Um, this is something which one or two other people do, but nobody does it quite effectively as Velodyne. They attach basically a very small accelerometer to the back of the cone. Um, this then senses the actual movement of the cone back and forth, and it compares that movement to the incoming signal from your AV processor or, or however you've decided to connect your subwoofer up, looks at them, compares them, and then actually modifies the amplifier's um, output to make the cone move more true to the original signal. Um, when you hear it in action, it's one of those things that initially sounds a bit unimpressive because precisely what you're not hearing is a lot of the guff that makes subwoofers sometimes sound impressive, but it makes them sound extraordinarily tight and dry. And there's a lot of the time, you actually wonder if the thing's switched on. Then, of course, something arrives, a big effect or whatnot and lifts you clean over the back of your sofa. Um, it's, it always was an impressive piece of technology, and it still is. Uh, and so I so and if you like the way velodyne employ it i don't think anybody else does it actually as well
1: obviously russell the the main part of of any subwoofer is is the type of driver that it's using um, so what are velodyne using with with this new model um it's an even it's an evolution of a driver that they actually did
0: for the completely over the top DD1812 um it's a, it's a, it's a sandwich cone made of cell which is one of those um, materials that's familiar to anybody who's on b&w speakers or, or or something like that um but whereas the old um uh, the old motor the old motor on the rear of the cone was um overhung, i.e. they used a very long voice coil in quite a small magnetic gap. They've now decided to use a very big magnetic gap with a short coil that stays entirely within its travel. Um, It's one of those things that makes a small difference, but it's quite expensive to do. But if you do it right, you can end up with an absolutely thunderous subwoofer. The new driver in this one, if if I'm remembering rightly, has just over twice the throw of the old one which is very important with a sealed subwoofer because you don't have a port to augment the bottom end output. So everything you get comes from that driver. If you could throw a driver twice as far, you've just doubled your output. Um, which is equivalent to basically buying you know, two of the old subwoofer. They've turned up the limits on the servo to uh, further quash distortion, but they now think they're getting so much output out of the longer throw drivers, the new 12-incher will actually offer more output than the old 15-incher, and that's quite a feat. That's a, yeah, admittedly it wasn't overnight, but that's that's a big leap from one range to the next for actually not much more money.
1: And talking of money, I mean. You know the ValaDyn digital drive scene It's 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 always been a premium subwoofer, but in terms of performance, how much are you getting for your for your buck? You could buy subwoofers
0: that will bend your walls and rattle your doors, probably harder below twenty hertz. The question as to whether you actually need to, yeah, probably not so much because your speakers have probably died trying to keep up with it. Um, in in realistic terms, and I'm sitting in a room here. That's what twenty-one feet one way by eighteen feet the other i'd never ever felt there was a moment when i really thought i really need to turn the bottom end up on this it really did deliver as much as you could really possibly need but it was the taut precision and the texture it gave to anything featuring any amount especially real sounds not so much the, the overblown you know big autobot punching something else halfway through a planet sort of sounds um... something like a tank track wandering past or something like that just felt so crisp and concussive and real. Um it's that's its real quality. It's not, not just sheer output, but it's just just the, the tactile reality it gives to everything.
1: Moving on to two channel music, I know you're a you're a big two channel fan as well as your movies. Uh how did it perform?
0: Uh yeah, no, I mean um, in terms of music performance, absolutely reference level. I mean, it's just it's it's clean, bottomless performance. Um you, unless you listen to sort of bass test tracks or something like that, you you wouldn't even get to know, you know, You'd never get to tax the real bottom end of it. Um, it just you, you turn it on and it just blends seamlessly into the bottom of your loudspeakers. But suddenly they sound four times the size, and so does the space in which um, the, the sound stage between them is happening. It's just you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know. It's it's a bit like drawing the curtains back, or you know, or whatever. It's um, very 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 impressive subwoofer. Probably one of the things I'll be most most enthusiastic about for some while, to be perfectly honest.
1: Now, there's always you know chat on the forums about musical subs. I mean, basically, any subwoofer should be able to, to handle music. What makes a Velodyne different? I don't know if it's necessarily just
0: the Velodyne different. I personally, and I know some people tend to disagree with this, tend to always lean towards sealed box subwoofers. Um, regardless of whether you've EQ'd them to flat in room or not, if just because their transient response is better, that's the time it takes after a note hits the driver for it to actually settle back to no note, if you like. Um, there's something, be- the, the, the sealed subs tend to be better damped, so not only do they tend to start the note possibly a bit sooner but they certainly let go of it quicker as well so it tends to although the notes are played with the same pitch the same precision and potentially the same level of distortion if you're within the subwoofers capabilities they just do seem to be a little bit more nimble and light on their feet um, it's it's one of those things you can measure you, you can measure it but ultimately when you're sitting there listening to it you use the old toe tapometer and uh, it, it, you know it just it just it just rumbles you know fast Fast fretted bass guitar and things like that, just, just really, really motor with it. Keep really keep the the rhythm of the music going.
1: Uh, we've already mentioned price, and I guess in, in rounding up, I mean we need we need to take price into consideration here in terms of overall. You've said it's reference, so it, it, using an analogies is that like comparing a a, a Vauxhall to a Ferrari. You know, both will get you from A to B, but you know, I know which one I'd rather be with. Um, where where. where?
0: Yeah, I mean, you theoretically can get bigger and even more capable subs. I mean, what we're dealing with here is, if not sort of, if not totally Ferrari, it's definitely Maserati, but not quite so badly behaved.
1: I like the analogy. So, reference level. If you want to read the uh, Russell's review, it is up there on the site evforums.com forward slash. Reviews and it's well worth a read. So go and have a read of that. Mm. Let's move back to Steve. Let's talk about TVs again, uh, very quickly because uh, we've already covered the D8000 plasma from Samsung. But we always like to go with the the largest possible screen for a review, and you had a look at the 64 inch. How did it perform?
2: Perform very well, actually, Phil. I mean, clearly uh, the 64 inch uh, Samsung is kind of positioning itself in co- direct competition. With the 65-inch uh, Panasonic VT30, uh, and I've got to say, uh, having already reviewed the 51-inch D8000, uh, which which I quite liked, but but wasn't totally bowled over by it. I gave, it, I think I gave it recommended, but uh, it was, it was a good TV, good solid TV, but I thought the blacks could have been a bit better. Um, I have to say that I really liked the 64-inch version. Um, when the review of the 51-inch came out. There was a few comments on the on thread attached to the review. People pointed out that they thought that when the cinema smooth was engaged, the blacks weren't quite as good as uh, as they were when it wasn't engaged. And they also uh, felt, uh, some people who owned the, the larger size, the 64-inch, uh, felt the blacks were better on that than it was on a 51-inch. Now, I, I was sceptical initially, but I have to say, uh, in actual measurements, uh, the 64-inch, uh, is performing better than the 51 inch. Uh, I measured 0.03 for um, a black level, 0.03 for uh, the 64 inch in 60 hertz, which is uh, you know borderline uh, borderline VT30 levels, so, and certainly as good as the uh, as, as as the Kuro measures. So that's pretty impressive. Um, the image is, is very nice. The calibration controls are as always with uh, with the pan- the Samsung's excellent uh, reference um, grayscale. And color performance. Um, uh, once again, as as with often with with um, Samsung's very good video processing as well, excellent video processing. So it's capable of producing a really nice image, even from um, standard definition material. Uh, very accurate image. Very good blacks. I've uh, got to say, I, I, I'm really liking it. I got, I, I'm really quite impressed with this TV. Uh, my only real areas of complaint, uh, and this applies to the every Samsung TV that seems to have been released this year, uh, is there is a a small amount of noise reduction going on that you just can't turn off. Um, It's a lot more obvious on the bigger size screen than it was perhaps on the 51 inch. It's very subtle, but it's definitely there. And if you do some noise reduction tests, you can see that it is um, taking out some of the, very subtly uh, doing some noise reduction, um, which you can get round if you use the game mode. Uh, it isn't doing it in game mode, but it is doing it in every other mode. Um, now, whether that's a big issue is entirely down to the person, I think. Personally, I, I, don't, I didn't find it a problem at all, um, but I'm just pointing it out. Uh, the other thing is the, uh, the silver design. The silver bezel can be a bit reflective. Uh, I would prefer personally, and this is purely a personal uh, preference, but I would prefer a, a, a black bezel. I always have, uh, regardless of the manufacturer. But, but otherwise, uh, and, and it's got smart TV, of course, uh, and I have to say I'm a big fan of Samsung. Smart TV, I think, is the best uh, internet platform that's currently on the market. Um, so it's got lots of big positives uh, going for it. And, and, I, and as I say, I, I've been quite impressed with this TV, and I've really, been, uh, really, been use, really enjoyed using it. When
1: you mentioned that the noise reduction side of things, is that the high frequency that it's, it's yeah. starting
2: to roll off there? That's right, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and and I saw a similar. Uh, I know Mark. I think saw it on the the LED D eight thousand he reviewed, and I definitely saw it also on the LED AD eight thousand that I reviewed. Um, it is there. It's a bit annoying, uh, really. It's kind of a. It's unfortunate uh, because Samsung, as I said, Samsung's video processing has always been top notch. Uh, it's a bit of a sort of retrograde step for them to have done this. I'm not quite sure why they have. Uh, and as I say, it, it, they don't do it on the games on game mode. It, uh, it's still uh, it's uh, uh, an I suppose, is the word. Um, so you can, if you want to, you could choose game mode instead of uh, movie mode. Calibrate the game mode um, settings, uh, which you can you can do full CMS and two point grayscale on game mode. So that's an option for people who wanted to do that, um, and and avoid the unwanted video um, unwanted noise uh, reduction. But uh, in game mode, I I noticed it was measuring about fifty milliseconds. So it's not, uh, uh, and that's the same kind of measurements I've been getting from all the Samsungs that I've reviewed uh, this year. So uh, once again, even though it's got a game mode, which as usual with Samsung is hidden away in the menu, um, it's not the input lag is a little bit on the high side for for a hardcore gamer, I think. But but for someone like me, you know, it's fine. But uh, if you're a particularly uh, dedicated gamer, you might think it's a bit slow.
3: With the noise reduction, Steve, is it, is it something you would think you'd notice uh, if it wasn't a side-by-side comparison? Do you think it's, it's pick, you can pick it out in, you know, everyday material or is it just something you've picked up on, on along the way, as it were?
2: No, I mean, I, I was, um, in this particular review, I was looking for specific things because I'd already yeah. reviewed a 51-inch previously and certain things had come up in the, in the, uh, in the forums – about that about that make of tv um i had a list of things i was specifically looking for so one of them was people had been complaining that the the black filter was peeling off well that's not the case in in, in the one i've got um people were complaining about brightness fluctuations once again i, I, I haven't really any problems with that at all either people were complaining of um um blind bleed See a little bit of that but nothing not, nothing to be concerned with and people had mentioned um mentioned the noise reduction now watching a blu-ray really i don't think you notice it to be honest i i only noticed it when i actually put up noise reduction tests off a test disc
3: and do, don't you think it gives it a sort of almost a false sense of clarity do you know what i mean um, a smooth like a smooth image and, that, and that's maybe why they do it on for on the show well, yeah, obviously obviously it's a, a clearer image they've clearly got something against grain <laughs>
2: Yeah. Uh, if you're watching a particularly grainy film, I mean, a good example, I suppose, would be Aliens, which is notorious for having quite a high level of grain because of the film stock that was used when that film was made. Um, yeah, there's a little bit smooth there, but I think on a, on a well-shot, relatively grain-free image, you're not even going to notice it.
3: Uh, uh, quite a lot of people don't like grain, do they? People complain well, well, about. Yeah, exactly. what, yeah, why oh, is well, looking looking grainy? Of course, it's been added by the by the director. So. Um, but a lot of people don't like it, so perhaps they're looking to appeal to them with that image.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Mark. I mean, it could well be a lot of people would prefer that, to be honest. Uh, as, I, as I say, uh, it, it's quite subtle. I don't think it's, most people probably wouldn't even notice it. Um, I mean, it is there. And if you do direct comparisons and put up some 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 you know some, uh, noise reduction tests and then flip between game mode and movie mode, you, you can see the difference. Um, but but I, I think on the majority of material, most people probably wouldn't notice it. Uh, I don't think it detracts from what is still a very good television um, with a very nice image overall. Um, and obviously, uh, unlike the Panasonic, it doesn't have issues with 50 hertz. So, so, you know, I guess I think the thing we've been saying this year quite quite regularly is, unfortunately, there's no such thing as a perfect TV. Um, there's always sort of issues here and there. But but overall, I think it's a very capable performer. And certainly if you're looking for a, a large screen plasma, uh your two options really at the moment, the 64-inch uh, Samsung and the 65-inch Panasonic. I would definitely give them both a, both a, uh, you know, a demo, and then and then make your mind up. But uh, as I say, uh, quite a difference in I, cost between the two. There is uh, well, that's the I mean that's the thing, right? I mean, there's there's the cost issue clearly that's going to be taken into account. Uh, performance-wise, I don't think there's much in it between the pair of them. Uh, and then there's obviously not the too result. grand anyway. <laughs> well, apart from the money, yeah. And obviously, there's the design you know, that the, the Samsung goes for the sort of the perhaps more wife-friendly silver sort of look, uh, and the um, the, the VT not my wife, <laughs> not like it.
3: No, can't stand the silver bezel stuff. Can't stand it. She's like you, black, black all yeah. the way.
2: Um, uh, well, but obviously, um, the difference, the big difference between other than the colour scheme between the uh, Samsung and the Panasonic is that the Panasonic uses a single sheet of glass, so. It's not uh, The Samsung is a lot less reflective than the Panasonic uh, in that respect, and also considerably lighter. The 65-inch VT30 weighs a ton. I mean, i uh, it took three of us, actually, you know, it took four of us to get it back into the lorry when it was picked up after review. It was that heavy. Um, the Samsung is noticeably lighter. I mean, I actually managed to put it up on my own, which I could not do at all with the, with the. Uh, with the Panasonic. So if you're thinking of wall mounting, for example, then bear in mind the massive difference in weight between the two.
1: So if you want to uh, read Steve's full review of the uh, 64D8000 Plasma, uh, then go to avforums.com forward slash reviews. And uh, we're going to go back to some audio and uh, another manufacturer, Russell, who have built up their company uh, specifically online uh, and uh, selling direct To the end user. I I believe their their models changed slightly uh, in the last year or so, but we're talking about XTZ. You've had the speakers for for some time now. You're using a a reference set there, which uh, you got from me a little while back. Um, But this time around, it was the Mark II model, so tell us all about it.
0: Yeah, um, or more specifically, the 99.26 model. Um, it, it, without going into depth, you should just go to their website and you'll work out which number applies to which shape. But basically, there's uh, there's two shapes of the 99.26, and a rectangular version called the 99.25, rather for some reason or another. They're all basically the same speaker. It's the box that's changed. Um, I think um, I think I was actually one of the first people in the country to have a pair before they even became known on the forum. They were sort of they they ticked a little box after a long internet search. I've been looking for for three identical speakers across the front, which is something I know you like, Phil. And it was it was a bit odd to try and find a manufacturer that actually sell you three loudspeakers. So anyway, um, so here we are, the Mark II version. Um, What's different? Well, frankly, from the outside, nothing apart from the Mark II sticker. All of the differences are in the crossover, um, which for those who like a peek inside a box when it's available, and I do, um, is a much, much more massive affair. It's gone from a 10 element crossover, I think, to 15 and it's on a different scale altogether. It's, it's like it's twice the size. All of the components are much bigger. Um, all of this without actually increasing the basic price of the, of the speaker, which is a nice thing. Um, but the difference it makes to the sound is, is, um, is quite remarkable um you know you can have a great box you can have great drivers um but if at the end of the day the crossover doesn't knit them together um it's it's a bit pointless it's a i don't know it's a bit like having the best source in the world and the best the best display in the world but if your picture processing is cack then you aren't going to get a good picture no matter what you do um
1: and that's basically what they've been doing they've been tweaking the internals and the guts of it so they've changed the crossover russell but um you know we have listeners who uh, are maybe starting out with their home cinema and so on, and don't quite understand what the difference is between crossovers. Maybe you could give us a quick one oh one on what the crossover does
0: right well simply in in a two way loudspeaker you have a you have a larger driver which handles the larger amplitude amplitude and deeper signals of your bass through to your, sort of the bottom end of your mid range but as frequencies increase that hands over to a tweeter which is a smaller more delicate driver better able to move quicker and disperse the the, the higher lighter frequencies like treble, simple as that the problem is is that there's no point sending the treble signal to the bass driver because it won't really do it and there's no point sending the bass driver to the tweeter because it will blow it up so what you have inside is a little network of electronics that take the signal in, split the two frequency ranges in half and to send the relevant bits to the right driver and the thing is is that loudspeaker drivers aren't a simple electrical device Um, their actual electrical properties change depending on how hot they are exactly if the cones in the middle of its travel or at the end of its travel it's quite different Um, it's almost it's almost a bit of a dark art the engineering of it you can you know you can plug various Values into various calculators to try and design a crossover, but it's quite. It t- they tend to be developed by quite experienced and um and clever people. Um, what we have here is a case of a an evolution. You know, they, they they brought their first one to the market with a nice nice enough little crossover. Probably didn't smooth out one or two of the smaller problems with the drivers, but they're very good drivers, which kind of helps. Um,
1: and this is a this is a result of two, three years down the line having had another little look and a little tweak of it, basically. Cool. So, in terms of uh, the actual speaker, I mean, is there a, a major difference between the, the Mark II, the Mark One, and, and how does the Mark II perform? Um,
0: the, the major difference is it just sounds a lot smoother, whereas the old one tended to get to, I think, about three kilohertz, and there'd be like a little bit of a shelf up in level, which tended to make it sort of slightly brighter and more forthright, um, Which tended to sound quite impressive with movie-type effects and 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 things like that, and also tended to project. You know, if you're listening to music, for instance, a vocalist would tend to be stand, would literally sound like they're standing two or three feet in front of the loudspeaker. The frequency response they've engineered now is a lot lot flatter. Um, With music, this means things have now settled back a little bit more to between the speakers, so you feel like you're a bit further back. You feel like you're sitting in row nine of the concert rather than row one. So everything just seems a little bit more in proportion. Um, and it just allows the natural detail of the drivers to shine through because they're you know, they're very, very good high-resolution drivers. Um, but it also sounds a bit more natural, a bit less fatiguing. Certainly if you've got them cranked up with movies for long periods, um, the fatiguing, slightly fatiguing edge, which I'd have pointed out as probably being one of the few faults of the Mark I, has really been smoothed off and rounded off very, very nicely. Um, it makes them sound a lot more expensive, they already did sound. Put this because of their online marketing model. To a degree, you do tend to get slightly better value for money with the inherent risks of buying a speaker in that fashion. Um, but it, you know, if I'd thought before, well, these are sort of the equal of a typical sort of thousand-pound loudspeaker. I'd now say they're more like the, the equal of a sort of a typical sort of thirteen, fourteen hundred quid loudspeaker.
2: So, can you just buy a seventy-five-pound crossover, replace it on the Mark One, and then have exactly the same as a Mark Two?
0: That, that's that's exactly what you'd get for 75 quid per speaker. Um, you basically upgrade them to full Mark II status with all that means in terms of protecting your residuals on the previous model. Um, if you don't feel particularly handy with the spannering, Audio Sanctum I think will actually do the conversion for you for another 75 pounds per loudspeaker. But even at 150 quid per loudspeaker, that's still a lot less than you would lose if a speaker had gone to full Mark II status, you felt compelled to sell it, and then go and buy the new model. So I still think that's reasonable value. But a quick look inside one shows it's not too too much of a difficult job.
1: So it sounds like a, a value uh, proposition there, Russell. Um, in terms of, of of these against competing speakers, I know you're a, a complete uh, buff when it comes to speakers, and, and you listen to a lot of them what kind of level of performance are you getting on, on more expensive models? Because you're actually buying, you know, almost direct from the manufacturer. Is there a, a gulf in performance to price?
0: It's it's a bit of a difficult one because the differences between loudspeakers tend to be a little bit subjective as they do much objective. I would say they're comfortably happy sitting amongst the pack of thirteen hundred to fifteen hundred quid stand mount speakers of a similar size. Um I mean, the tweeter appears in uh, – that exact same tweeter appears in other manufacturers. I can think of a floor-standing model with exactly the same tweeter for £3,500. Right. Uh, you get – obviously, you get commensurately more in other areas of the speaker's build, but these aren't exactly lacking in that. So it's always a it's – it's a little bit of a fine one to call. You know, this is why I, know, I tend to always shy away from direct, is X speaker better than my speaker? Well – that sort of largely depends whether you think it is, but yeah, it's 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 pretty damn good.
1: Yeah, I've got to ask that question. I know there's all different types of things like what kind of room it's going in, and there's all these different parameters. And like you say, it it gets very subjective. Um, but then again, yeah. that's why we call you Mister Golden Ears. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, well done. Did
2: you get a badge, Russell?
0: Uh,
1: yeah, I gave it a I gave it a best buy on just just sheer value for money grounds, really. Excellent. So there you go. That's the XTZ 99 point, what is it? 2.6. 2.6. It Piano. always confuses me. Um, Mark but, two. but if you want all the details on that review, then avforums.com forward slash reviews is the place to go and read Russell's uh, fantastic review on those speakers. And we're almost out of time for the podcast this month. Uh, But I guess uh, we can't go without discussing a brand new projector, which is going to be hitting uh, the UK in September. And I was lucky enough to be invited over to Hollywood. Uh, Now, it'd be two weeks ago now um, to go and have a look at it. It's a long way to go (laughs) to go and look at a a projector. Um, So that was what. Almost about 20 hours travelling there and 20 hours travelling back. But I've got to say, a fantastic location. It was held at Panasonic Hollywood Labs, uh, which is based in Universal City, next door to NBC. Um, And next to the the theme park as well, which uh, we went for a a wander around when we landed in LA. And bumped into Jay Leno, who was uh, doing some interviews in the street. So that's all my name dropping done. What was the projector like? Well, um, we were taken into a, a viewing room. Um, which is the main viewing room at PHL. Now, this is a 30-foot screen um, which they use a, a Christie digital projector uh, for looking at uh, rushes and uh, uh, some of the compression work that they do. Um, if people aren't aware, po- uh, Panasonic Hollywood Labs are responsible for the 3D Blu-ray standard. Uh, it was uh, it was them who developed uh, the sequential standard for the Blu-ray uh, or playback of 3D. So what they, they tend to do in that room is they tend to put up the the master uh, and then the compressed uh, Blu-ray disc on a split screen and you've got to decide which one is the master and which one is the uh, compressed version and it can get pretty difficult with, uh, with some material uh, actually telling the difference between what is compressed and what isn't compressed. Uh, so it was a 30-foot screen. Um, we had the PTA-4000, which was the last model from Panasonic, um, which has been out since 2009. And I think we gave it a highly recommended badge back then when we reviewed it. Lots of interest in this projector. It's an LCD projector, but it adds in 3D this time around. Pricing hasn't been given yet, but it's likely to be about €3,500, Euros, which is likely to equate to 3500 pounds, probably. It uses a D9 LCD uh, panel, but with a a new wider aperture, so it's uh, it's said to be a lot brighter uh, than the the outgoing PTA 4000. And the 4000 was not the brightest projector out there. It really uh, it really needed to be set up in a really good room. Uh, it would suffer if it was set up in a room with white walls and white ceilings and only the curtains pulled. The main thing is that they have changed. The design, I don't know if you guys saw the design of the pta 4000 but it was basically a brick, uh, a square brick. They've changed that. It's a little bit bigger. And they've rounded off the edges and moved the lens from a central position to a uh, position on the right. So it does kind of look like uh, the latest line of Epson projectors, uh, that kind of look with the, the vent to the left-hand side, lens to the right-hand side. In terms of... Uh, Picture quality. Well, they're claiming that the the LCD panels running at 480 hertz for 3D material, and they reckon um, it is almost crosstalk free. And I have to say, during uh, the demonstrations which I had, and that was two demonstrations in two different rooms, it was really impressive, and there wasn't an awful lot of crosstalk there. In fact, you had to look really hard for the crosstalk. Obviously, it's using Active shutter glasses, it's the same active shutter glasses that they use on the Viera TVs. So if you have a Viera TV, um, you don't have to go out and buy another set of glasses. Uh, the the glasses will work with this projector. And we saw uh, quite a bit of material from 2D to 3D material. It was 3D that obviously they were pushing with this model. And I have to say, really impressive stuff. Uh, didn't notice any flicker from the glasses. And bright image, Phil? Yeah, um, well, it's it's like it's like all these projectors. I mean, obviously they've started off with a wider aperture for the the D nine um, LCD panels. So in two D it's really bright. In three D you're losing about seventy percent, but it's still quite bright for three D. You only really notice the difference when you take the glasses off in terms of how much light you're actually losing. But saying that, watching three uh, D images on it is very much like the X three, uh, the X seven, and the X nine. Uh, for JVC. Uh, same sort of level of brightness to the image. Not as dark as uh, the Sony VW90, uh, which was very dark um, for 3D, and there was a lot of crosstalk in there. It, it, completely different with this one. It, it it shows that they've taken the time, which we've been waiting on a new model coming to, to develop this one. Um, so it's going to be interesting to get in for review in terms of the 3D side of things.
2: What was the... Um ...material they were using for demonstration in 3D. Which one of the 13 films did they use? Well, I'm guessing... <laughs> I'm going to guess it's Avatar. <laughs> uh, you would
1: right. yeah. Um, we had about 20 minutes of Avatar on the big screen. Uh, no, it wasn't projecting at 30 feet. It was projecting at about 90 inches... ...because it had the two projectors next to each, next to each other. Obviously, the 4000 isn't a 3D model... ...so we only watched 3D on the on the 5000. It's the PT-85000 in Europe uh eighty seven thousand in in the states just to confuse things. Um yeah we watched about twenty minutes of Avatar. I've got to say when I first started watching it now there was about fourteen of us in the room and I was off to one side and I was having quite a bit of issues with sync with the glasses. But then again you got fourteen people all wearing glasses from this one IR transmitter. So it was uh to be expected sitting off to the side I was gonna get some issues and when I actually stood up and walked around and I was You know, centrally on with the image, um, uh, it stopped making a lot of the issues that I was getting to start with because I was quite worried to start with because there was quite a few issues there. But it was it was all to do with the sink of the glasses. Um, And once I moved round and then we were in a a proper sort of living room environment for the second one, sitting that little bit closer and. uh, uh, getting the full uh, immersiveness of of the image so yeah it was it was really impressive i mean obviously the pre-production models we will have to wait and see what the actual production uh, samples are like they tended to say that they will be even better because they'll, they'll have a couple more months to work on them but it also had uh, some quite neat little features in there called uh, one was a, a parallax adjustment um, which looks like a, a waveform monitor um, so if people aren't, aren't um, up to speed with what a waveform monitor is basically it's uh it's a graphical interface you normally see it on uh, digital cameras and video c- cameras and it's for setting your exposure and so on so you're not, uh, so the bright parts of the image are not too bright and so on well the waveform monitor it, it looks at the image and you can split it to left eye right eye and you can check the, the actual readout on the monitor to check that, that each of the images matches and, and if you've got a difference there then you can uh, change one eye or the other eye which I thought was quite neat. I mean, I'm not 100% sure when you would ever use that um, but it was quite a ni- nice little feature to see and it had a, a quite a nice graphical interface and so on so if you're a, somebody that likes to tinker about with stuff you, you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Obviously it's got its the old waveform monitor for setting up 2D images. It's got full calibration controls. Unfortunately on the pre-production model they hadn't changed the uh the box system that they use for the CMS. There is a workaround. Um and when we get the review sample in I'll explain the workaround on how to get around and use the CMS properly. Um unfortunately we did feed it back to them, but it looks like they're gonna continue with the old design, which just doesn't work because the colours produced by the projector. Um, which it produces as the, as, you, as your reference is wrong when you measure it. So uh, you're better doing a workaround where you actually measure from a, uh, a pattern generator.
2: Sorry, Phil, I was going to say, the, um, one of the features I really liked on the previous projector, 4000 was it, um, was the zoom and shift memory. Yeah, the cinema. Usually with a two point three five to one screen.
1: Yeah, the lens uh, lens adjustment. Well, obviously that came out on the three thousand. The four thousand added in the automatic detection. So if if you were watching a sixteen by nine film and it suddenly changed to two three five, the projector realised that and then would zoom it out to fill your two three five screen. That remains with this model. It's still there, but it it won't work with three D. Films uh, that scope. And the reason that was what was explained to me, and uh, there is a slide in the video, and the video is up there on avforums.tv. Um, there is a slide on there for the 3D customized um, projection image. And basically, their, their ex- explanation was that the amount of parallax uh, actually changes when you zoom the image up, because that's basically what you're doing, you're, you're basically zooming the projector and you're changing the, the parallax of the image. So if you're going for from a 90 inch to 120 inch wide, uh, the parallax changes. So your eyes um, uh, should be 60 millimeters. Is that right, Steve? You're the 3D expert? Yes. For excellent parallax. So that changes as soon as you go to a wider screen, then that parallax changes. Um, so that's the reason why it's it's not there. We'll wait and see for the review model. Um, and see if they've done something to add that in there but I wouldn't put my mortgage on it, um, it looks like it's a, it's an issue and it's something that JVC don't do as well, I mean the X3, X7, X9 you can't use an anamorphic lens, it won't do the anamorphic stretch, so that's the only downside there and to be honest I don't think it's a downside because like we've already discussed, I mean the JVC don't do it um, because of, of issues with the scaling the Panasonic doesn't do it, but you can still force it manually um, and, yeah. and zoom it up manually if that's what you want to do but then there's only 13 films out there in blu-ray and i think two of them are in two three five other things with the projectors it had seven different picture modes which i thought was um interesting because i think one of the issues of feedback we gave to them last year or the year before was that uh, cut down on the, on the number of different picture modes and they've increased them so there you go uh, normal listening. normal dynamic rec 709d cinema cinema one cinema two and game mode Uh, And in game mode, it says it reduces the uh, frame delay, so the lag time. Um, So that'll be interesting to check out. I don't do much gaming, and I've never done gaming on a projector, so that'll be a new experience for me. Uh, The one of interest there is Cinema 1, Cinema 2. Cinema 1 is designed by a Hollywood colourist, so it'll be completely wrong to the standards, um, like it was last time. D-Cinema is a completely wide gamut. Rec. 709 is the one that we're going to be obviously the most interested in out-of-the-box to see uh, whether that matches the standards. And, of course, it's not THX certified either, so there's no THX mode. So I would imagine that Rec709 is going to be your out-of-the-box closest to the standards. They've also fully engineered the the pure contrast plates, the the colour filter that's in there as well, as well as the dynamic iris. Now, I'm not a fan of dynamic iris. I always switch them off. Uh, To me, the projector has to produce... Uh, an excellent base uh, image before you add any manipulation in there. Um, so I always switch that off and test the projectors without the, the iris because it's just a way of cheating. It's like these LCD TVs that change the gamma and all the rest of it to make the blacks look better or or dim the, the whole panel um, and change your whole um, luminous results for your image. It just makes things look completely bad, especially when you get a, a, a scene where you've got bright Bright areas and dark areas together, it gets confused and it starts opening and shutting and opening and shutting. So I tend to switch them off. Uh, The other one is smooth screen. Now a lot of um, misinformation from the last few models out there on on the interweb uh, regarding smooth screen. A lot of people say it makes the image look soft. Um, Actually it doesn't change the image sharpness at all. Uh, Smooth screen is basically it fills in the amount of space between the pixels. it's a technology which DILA have been using for a number of years now, um closing the gap between each pixel. So uh when you get a a big image on uh, 120, 20 inches, you're not getting the screen door effect. Again, they've HD optimized that on this model, done a little bit of work on uh, the actual uh pixel alignment on the L C D panels. Um and the last feature and the one that really worked on on the PTA four thousand was the red rich lamp now. Uh, Those that that know how projectors work, a UHP lamp uh, has very, very little red energy in it. Uh, It's very much towards the green and yellow, uh, so it can get brightness, um, which is why a lot of the gamuts on projectors are really wide, because they're trying to get the most brightness out of the bulb. Panasonic have designed a a lamp which has a lot more red energy in there, and they've also upped the the power this year, so it's now a a 200-watt UHP red-rich lamp. Uh, they've also changed the the way that the lamps cooled and so on, um, and I I got to hold both the lamps from the four thousand the five thousand. There's a lot of engineering has gone into the five thousand. So uh, again, be interesting to get the measurement tools out and uh, and measure that. So that's basically an overview of the projector. Um, in terms of black levels, very good. Uh, in terms of dynamic range, excellent compared to the four thousand. There was a real difference. Uh, in dynamic range and contrast performance. Uh, blacks looked a lot richer and a lot deeper and a, a lot more like black than grey. Uh, I've got to say I'm excited about this one. Um, I travelled a long way to see it and the reason I travelled a long way to see it was uh, that I wanted to see it. Um, it, it. It's an interesting concept, it's an interesting model. The 4000 was a really interesting projector. It didn't work in your average living room in terms of uh, you know, full output uh but stick it in a back cave and it looked absolutely uh spot on and and it calibrated so well as well it was uh probably one of the better images after uh, uh after the jvcs last year um not quite as black uh for terms of blacks and not quite as uh, dynamic in the dynamic range but um in terms of calibrated performance in a back cave um the 4000 is excellent i've still got the 4000 here which we use as a reference and uh there's a lot of times I'll switch that on, watch a film on it, even though I've got a JVC sitting there.
0: How does it sit value-wise against much more expensive projectors?
1: Um, well, this is going to come in, I mean, I'm guessing here uh, there is a Euro price out there at 3.5, so I'm, I'm going to say it's going to be between 2.8 and 3.5 uh, for UK pricing. Um, if it comes in at 2.8, then it's, it's up against the Sony in the, in the HW30 and the JVC X3. Um, so that's going to be its main competition if it's in the 2.8 to 3.5 range. Uh, so that's the, the Panasonic PTA AT5000. I keep wanting to say AE, but it's called AT because all 3D products in Europe have the T symbol on them. So there you go. Um, so we've looked at the Lumigen. We've looked at the uh, Samsung 64D8000, the LG 650T, uh, the Velodyne Digital Drive 15, the XTZ speakers, and the Panasonic Projector, and that's all we've got time for. So, uh, all I need to do now is thank the guys. So, uh, thanks very much for your time this evening. Thank you, Phil. Cheerio. Thanks, Phil. And we'll be back again next month with another home cinema podcast. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. The AV podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was
0: mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only.
2: The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.